I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. Over the last few years, some military veterans have been guests on the show. As this week marks Memorial Day, honoring and mourning the military personnel who have died in the performance of their military duties, I wanted to listen back to a few conversations with guests that speak to their experiences in the armed services and its context in their lives. This show will feature extracts from conversations with three past guests, military veterans Chris Hochstetler, Bobby Bromfield and Joe Gerstand. This first extract is from my conversation with Chris Hochstetler, who is an army veteran, nonprofit leader, and currently executive director of the Stern Museum. Chris Hochstetler was born to a single mother in Grand Island, Nebraska, and he and his siblings were homeless for much of his childhood. After extended years in foster care, he graduated from Grand Island Senior High and enlisted in the army. In a 20-year decorated career, he served in various combat and other assignments around the world. His last assignment was the Acting Battalion Sergeant Major of the Army's only Special Operations Recruiting Battalion, a unit with a critical worldwide mission that he helped to create. Hochstetler's many military decorations include the Legion of Merit, America's seventh highest military award. Here is an extract from my conversation with Chris, which aired originally on August 21st, 2019, beginning with reflections on his self-belief and his entry into the Army. It may be that it's only in hindsight that you can see this. Or was there a moment when you can identify that you went from a degree of skepticism or disbelief in this mantra about believing in yourself to the point where you thought, I can believe in myself. There is something there. Yes, I, I think that probably came early in my army career, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I rapidly figured out that the army is not difficult if you just do what you're told and if you work hard. Physically, it's very hard, very difficult, and it is emotionally. I don't want to. I don't want to underscore that. But you know, 20 years in the army, I've got a certain amount of experience that I can say it's it's, it's truly not difficult. Combat is very difficult. Um, but early on in my career, I started. Uh, pursuit of what was called soldier of the year and that would have been back in 1987 probably and uh, over a period of time I, I went through a series of boards where you would meet with senior non-commissioned officers and officers and they would quiz you on questions they would look at your records your marksmanship records your fitness records and they, you had to have an extraordinary knowledge of what it was what it meant to be a soldier uh, and the history of the military as well and I, I progressed 
very, very far in that competition. I, in fact, I was the seventh corps, which is now deactivated, but I was the seventh corps mm-hmm. soldier of the year, which was the best soldier of 30,000, which later got me in a, little, a, a certain amount of difficulty because my head got a little large for, for my hat, uh, being the best of 30,000 soldiers, and that can cause issues too. And I was very young. But I went as high as the Army Soldier of the Year, uh, and I lost that competition to be the best soldier in the entire Army in, a, in 1989. And I lost that uh, competition to a tuba player in the Army Band. And at that point in time, I was, a, I was an armor crewman. I was in a tank. Mm-hmm. And combat arms is brutal that way. And, and losing to a tuba player was, was not that there's any... I mean, tuba players are great. They're hard hard guys you know they do the same thing that i did but but in a different way but uh i never lived that down losing to a tuba player (laughs) i guess you're um enfolded in metal in some way uh one's more musical than the other yeah and uh tuba tank i mean there's some alliteration here maybe it was meant to be (laughs) right yeah (laughs) definitely (laughs) (laughs) so you graduated from grand island senior high the opportunity has been presented to you that the military might be a good pathway for you. But let me ask, why did you join the Army? I actually visited the Marine Corps first. And, um, you know, the recruiters were, were a little overbearing for me. I knew I wanted to do something difficult. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to be challenged physically and mentally. The Army just seemed like a good fit. You know, I couldn't see myself on a, on a ship in the Navy. I didn't want to go to the Air Force because, uh, you know, I wanted to, to do something that was at least perceived to be more difficult on my part. Not that not that there's any distinction between the branches of service. They are all incredibly honorable and, and difficult places to be at times. Um, but I thought that the Army had the challenge that I was looking for. So tell us a bit more about this career. It's 20 years, so obviously it developed and morphed and transformed over time. Yes, it did. Well, you know... I don't know if anybody actually goes in the military thinking that they're going to retire from the military. I, I think it's, it's something that just happens. And I remember, you know, going into the Army and, 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 and doing well in basic training and, and getting through basic training and getting my first duty assignment and then start embarking on this this road to Soldier of the Year and all of these things. And, and, and my career was really kick-started by people who cared about me. My first duty assignment, I had a, a lieutenant, Lieutenant Mekovic. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him, but he was a West Point graduate. And I was still pretty young then. I was 18. And he said, you know, there's a way for me to get you into West Point still. And you, you need to go to West Point. And at that point in time, um, you know, you could go to, and I think you still can go to West Point Preparatory School. Uh, they take a certain number of enlisted guys and, and women every year. And they put them through preparatory school. And then if they survive the or, or complete the preparatory school, they'll go to West Point. But you had to commit to, you know, four or five years of, of prep school and, and West Point together. That'd be about five years. And I think there was another eight-year commitment to the service after that. When you're 18 and young, those years look like there's so many. And I just couldn't do it. I said, no, I'm just going to stay enlisted. I ended up spending probably more time than I would have had had I gone the route of going to West Point. Um, and later in life, I found out in, in my army career, I found out that I, I personally believe that I was a very good non-commissioned officer and that's a good role for me. Uh, I am an, what I consider to be an executor. 
and it was nice to be the sergeant major at the end of my career next to the colonel and have the colonel have a vision of what the unit should be doing and come to me and say, you know, Sergeant Major, I need you to execute this. Can you buy off on it and, and have me uh, give him or her my, my feedback and, and then ultimately have be a part of that decision but be responsible for that execution of that vision. And so I, I was always pretty good at that. And, uh, yeah, that it was not that of an illustrious career, to be honest. Uh, you know, I survived. I have many friends who didn't come back from combat. Uh, and um, I'll never forget those guys. Uh, I was honored to serve in special operations um, about halfway through my career. I finished my career at Fort Bragg with a very specialized unit. Um, when September 11th happened, a colonel and, and, and I we were approached because of our past experiences and, and, and we were asked to create a plan to double the size of special special forces. At that time, there was about 3,700 special forces operators in the arsenal when September 11th happened. And we had very few Arabic speakers, very few Farsi or Pashtu speakers, virtually none. So we, in, in, in a sense, we were caught off guard that way. And that was the time when intelligence agencies weren't really talking to one another either. There was big issues there. But the colonel and I were able to devise a plan that within two short years following September 11th, we were able to double the size of special forces up to about 7,000 operators. And that was to promulgate what was then called the, the global war on terrorism. How did you manage to do that in a way that didn't sacrifice the integrity and the excellence that is associated with uh, members of special operations units? Yeah, that's a great question, Stuart, because special operations soldiers cannot be mass-produced. There's no question. Uh, you have to be someone who is very physically fit but mentally fit, and you have to be someone who, who, who has a great capacity to innovate and to create. And that's what it boils down to. You have to be very entrepreneurial. So what we did was recognizing that the selection rate through special forces assessment selection was only about 25% at any given cycle, and then you would also lose soldiers in what was called the qualification course. So the long and the short of it was, you know, there's maybe anywhere from 10 to 12 percent of, at that point in time, only men were allowed in special forces, uh, would actually complete the training and become a Green Beret and become operational uh, in the field. We identified kind of the choke points to that. The first thing that we did was we said, well, you know, we're fighting this war on terrorism right now. We have soldiers who are getting combat experience. Can we go to them? Can we go to the combat zone and can we find these soldiers? Can we work with them and pull them out of the combat zone and get them to special forces training? Is that a risk that's worth taking? Not only doing it and going out in the combat zone and getting the soldiers, but also is it is it a huge risk taking those soldiers from their units during combat operations and saying, no, it's more. It's critical right now that you become a special forces operator versus stay in the unit that you're in right now. So we created a process for that to happen. We also created a, a mechanism to fill the gap regarding physical fitness and the land navigation and mental toughness that it would take to get these guys through assessment selection. In a sense, we got them prepared to go to assessment and selection as good as we could. And that increased the selection rate dramatically. We were sending the right guys, and they were mentally and physically prepared for it. You mentioned that you yourself started 
in uh, the armored division. You mentioned mm-hmm. tanks. Uh, before even joining, you knew that you, you didn't particularly like the attitude of the Marine recruiters. Mm-hmm. And so here you are as a moving through, um, and you didn't want to go to West Point because of the reasons you mentioned. So you're moving through your career um, and moving up into a sort of non-commission role, which suited you. But that's a little more regular in terms of the army, but you yourself transitioned into uh, a more of a special operations role. That's right. So how was your transition? What what made you decide that you wanted to make that shift from from one aspect of the service to the other? Uh, I think that part of that is just the desire to be constantly challenged. I'm a very curious person. In fact, that's my, that's kind of my mantra of where I've been. And, and certainly I, you know, I hope that as the Dean of Innovation and Creativity at Hastings College, that the one thing that I can probably impact in this position is it, and I hope that this is the way, is a constant nagging curiosity of what could be. And I think that's what led me down the path that I that I went in my army career is is, you know, just how far can you go, how far can you push? I'm always into physical challenges. I like physical challenges. Uh, I'm not the fastest guy, you know, in the in the room. Perhaps you know, I, I'm not the brightest guy in the room. Never have been, but I like to be challenged by that. And I like to push to see just where that can lead. And I, and I think that uh, special operations unit, units across the board are filled with like-minded people who just want to push and see, see what's next. And that constant curiosity, constant change, it's uncomfortable. It's terribly uncomfortable. But, you know, creativity and, and innovation, it's incredibly uncomfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not innovating. You're probably not being creative. I honestly lost count of how many honors and medals were in your bio, and I I just stripped that back a little bit Mm -hmm. because your service uh, is extensive. You've been decorated with uh, honors, medals, commendations maybe 17 times, which speaks to a, a, a really excellent service career. Before we move on to sort of some of these new civilian roles around creativity, is there anything that stands out to you from with with and I'm sure with all humility because that's kind of the guy you are but with with that humility acknowledged is there anything that particularly stands out from your service that perhaps uh, um, others would regard as um, a truly fine moment uh, wow I mean it's a it's a it's a pressing question because I, I don't think that any soldier or any service member you know considers those those awards that you that you are honored with as as something that you're pursuing you know you just you just don't you know look at it that way and in in many cases you're awarded something for uh something that you feel like you didn't deserve or or that you were just in the right place at the right time or you just did the right thing you know and it got observed and there's countless probably thousands of those opportunities and actions that go unrewarded because a either your leaders didn't have the, the foresight to submit and do the paperwork for it or or nobody saw you doing something extraordinary uh, i have to say the legion of merit was a complete and utter surprise to me it's an award that's usually reserved for officers frankly 
not non-commissioned officers. If if non-commissioned officers, probably at the highest level of the Army, maybe Sergeant Major of the Army. So when I was uh, honored with the Legion of Merit, it was a shock to me. I was re- pretty much reduced to tears, which also is, you know, a, a, a lot of folks when they look at soldiers and, and, and especially on the special operations side, they'll, they'll say, you know, uh, you know, well, those guys don't, don't cry or they don't, you know, they don't hurt or they don't, you know, soldiers don't do that, but that's, that's false. You know, there's many tears that are shed with each other, uh, over many different things and it all hurts. Uh, but getting that Legion of Merit, uh, and being honored with that, you know, doesn't do much for me now, say for maybe this interview, but that meant, that meant the world to me because I, I honestly, I feel like during my whole career, I, I stood on the shoulders of giants. I was recognized in that moment, and it, it meant so much to me. You know, guys like Matthew Slustiller, who was the first uh, soldier killed in Pakistan before we, in, in 2010, uh, he was one of my soldiers, you know, and killed after I retired from the Army. But guys like Matthew are are the reasons why I have the Legion of Merit now. And every time I look at that, I think of guys like Matthew. I think of his wife and his daughter Hannah, who, who you know, Hannah doesn't have a, a father anymore. Uh, and she'll grow up without a father. She was three when he died. So I think about those situations, and, and I, I guess that's that's why that particular award means so much to me. You talked about this personal trait of nagging curiosity. And so did you leave with the intention of deliberately finding roles that spoke to that nagging curiosity, deliberately seeking realms of creativity? Mm. And so your bio speaks about the Kaneko mm-hmm. and obviously this current role. So what did you intend when you left and how have you transitioned from there to these creative roles? Right. Well, I, I, that nagging curiosity was always there as well as a fear after 20 years. I mean, you go in the Army when you're 17, you know, and and 20 years later you come out at 37. And the only thing you really know through those formative years is the Army. And by the way, I think that that's a challenge for us now that we don't even realize. You know, we've got a whole generation of folks that went from 17 to 37 and are retiring now. And they probably have 10, 11, 12 combat tours under their belt. The last 18 years of fighting but ha- has produced more amputees than any other any other war we've ever fought in. That's because we're able to save them on the battlefield. They would have died in any other conflict. So just a, a little divergent there just to say that there's this, there's a massive bubble of what that looks like, I think, coming down the road for us that we need to we need to be prepared to deal with. But no, I had that nagging curiosity, but also I, I had this desire to give back. I've always been very, very grateful for the fact that my family has never known poverty. My kids are so far removed from poverty. One generation, now I'm not a wealthy person, but they have always, you know, they've always been provided anything that they wanted. I owe the taxpayers that. You know, they they took good care of me in the Army. They took good care of my family while I was in the Army. And I did not pay a single dime for my undergraduate or my graduate degree. So when I was in getting ready to graduate from my undergraduate um school, college of, of uh, you mentioned legal studies and, and history as well. I had visions that maybe I'll go to law school. 
And I had a professor that took me under his belt and said, you know, I think you want to go to law school for the wrong reasons. I said, you know, you, you want to help people. He said, I've seen plenty of, not that lawyers don't help people, but I've seen plenty of frustrated lawyers who thought that they were going to change the world and, and that's not the way it, it panned out. He said, why don't you consider maybe looking at nonprofits? Could you get a, a graduate degree to help you with nonprofits and kind of go out and do the, the giving back in the world that, that I feel you strongly believe in. And, and I did that. And that's why I pursued public administration. At that point in time, there were few programs that you could actually get a degree in nonprofit management. Now I think you can. Then it was just a, a public administration degree with a specialization. So that's the route that I went. And initially, I was blessed to be hired on immediately out of the Army in a very senior position with the American Lung Association. That's kind of where I cut my teeth for five years in nonprofit management at a senior executive level, as well as learning what it is to, to fundraise. You know, I was responsible for fundraising across the nine-state region, and I, I got to tell you that a lot of times combat is probably an easier route than fundraising, you know, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of facetiousness there, but, but fundraising is a tough gig. So I did that. I was pretty good at it. Uh, it did get to a point where, uh, you know, my wife and family and I decided that it's time to be home. You know, the entire time that I had been married, I had been gone, whether that was, you know, in the army, traveling the world, uh, doing what I needed to do or with the American Lung Association across nine states or with the Missionary Society of St. Columban, which was, uh, you know, global mission as well. There was just an enormous amount of travel. You know, the world is about relationships, and I happened to know someone who, who alerted me to the fact that uh, the Kaneko was an open position, and they were looking for someone who had skills in, in being a CEO or executive director at a senior level, but also in fundraising, because that's a big part of what any executive director needs to do is fundraising. I was fortunate enough to interview and get the position. Um yeah, it's it's a creative place, and and I did get that question a lot when I was at the Kaneko, and and I welcome that question because I've got an answer that I've developed over time. But of what the heck are you doing here with a background as a as a soldier? How can, how are you the CEO of the Kaneko? And so I I've welcomed that question, and and I and my time at Kaneko was was incredible. It's a, an incredibly creative place. It really allows you to dive in deep and just ask questions and be curious. It's a perfect place for me. This next extract is from my conversation with Joe Gerstan, which aired on January 3rd, 2018. Joe Gerstan is a speaker, author, and advisor, bringing clarity, action, and impact to organizational diversity and inclusion efforts. Joe grew up on a family farm in Northwest Iowa, serving four years in the United States Marine Corps, and is a veteran of Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm a strong advocate for resetting the diversity and inclusion conversation, Joe sees diversity and inclusion as poorly understood and often misunderstood. Today, Joe believes that we can ill afford to continue applying 20th century approaches 
to an increasingly critical set of 21st century issues. During our conversation, we spoke about Joe's decision to join the Marine Corps, his experience in service, and his decision to leave the Corps and go to college. First, I asked him if he noticed he was different from his teenage peers. Do you look back and recognize that perhaps you were different to the other kids with whom you grew up? Um, gosh, that's a good question. I don't think, um, I don't know how I would answer that question for sure. What I will say is that um, one of the fairly consistent feelings in my life is that I've been different from the people around me. Um, and I, I'm a straight, white, middle-class male that lives in the middle of the country. I, I've never faced anything in the form of intentional discrimination or exclusion, but I have, and, I, and this may be just an internal thing, but I have pretty consistently in life not felt like I fit in. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons why when I found this work, it resonated with me to some extent. Um, but I don't know that I ever, you know, got clear on what it was that I thought was different about me. But but a, a feeling of not quite fitting in, uh, pretty consistent. Does that feeling have what I'm driving towards is what it was in your formative years that perhaps you you can look back on and just say, oh, I see, I see now how when I was in my teens. I would be called at some point to diversity and inclusion. I didn't know it at the time. I was oh, goodness, too young no. to make sense of Oh, goodness, of no. Um, if the people that I was in high school in the Marine Corps with met me now, they would not recognize me. Um, I, I kind of have come from one end of the spectrum to the other on this set of issues. When I, uh, when I graduated high school and I was a young adult, um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have owned the fact that I had a lot of racist ideas and beliefs, but I did. Um, I was probably fairly blatantly and proudly sexist, um, homophobic off the charts. Um, so um, I, I don't think that's the case that I saw myself doing this work. I think you know one of the points of connection that I draw between the work that I do now and and the Marine Corps, which was my first job, was that um, the Marine Corps was the first time that I really felt like I was doing something of value, like we served a valuable purpose. And when I left the Marine Corps, I went to college, and then I spent some time in the corporate world, and that feeling was very noticeably missing. Um, and it wasn't until I went to work in the nonprofit space and started to do stuff around diversity and inclusion that I felt like. I was, um, you know, part of something significant. I was involved in making the world a better place. So let's, let's explore that journey a little bit then, which I think will give us a good platform to talk about what diversity and inclusion means and why it is of value, especially to you. So the journey seems to begin in that case with the Marine Corps. And why did you join? Boy, that's another good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for. I, I really think mostly I joined because I wanted to get away. Um, I uh, 
at a very young age, had an allergy to being told what to do. And so was just looking for a way to get away from home, even though I came from a very healthy, very loving uh, family, Uh, just wanted to get away and wanted to get a long way away. And the Marine Corps was a way to do that. And fortunately for me, um, it worked for me. I drank the Kool-Aid. I I really, really enjoyed the Marine Corps. And I know sometimes people get into commitments like that and they realize they made a mistake. And I think that's a pretty long four years. I really enjoyed the Marine Corps. It was a great experience for me. Um, I think I had a lot of growing up to do. Uh, That was a good place to do it. I got to see some things. I was exposed to quite a bit of difference. And I, you know, once I got in the Marine Corps and I kind of figured it out, I really, like I said, I really felt like I was a, a part of something, you know, of value. What were, if I can ask, some of the experiences that were both enjoyable in in the sense I might be able to use that word, but also really character forming for you? Yeah. So, I mean, boot camp um, is a pretty crazy experience in the Marine Corps. They take, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 people scattered from all over the place and they dress them the same and they shave their heads and they make them do all of this stuff together. And so I wasn't using the words diversity and identity and things like that, but I think I was learning some really interesting lessons right there because, you know, there were people that looked like they were very different than I was, that I had a lot of things in common with. And there were also people that looked very similar to me, who came from a very different world, a very different background, a very different life than I had. And so I think there was some important lessons learned there. Um, You know, I got to travel a lot and that was wonderful. And and I don't think I had any interest in in really traveling when I joined the Marine Corps, but I spent a year in Iceland um, and Iceland's a beautiful place. A year is probably too long for a a single 19 year old, but it's a beautiful place. And once I went to Iceland, I was kind of hooked on the idea of seeing things that were different because there's just, there's so much interesting stuff out there. There's differences in how people dress and their food and their customs. And, and, and I think you have to go there and see it to really feel that. Um, and, and you give, you have the opportunity to pick some of those things up and, and, and wrap them up into you. Um, so I spent a year in Iceland. I traveled all over the place in the States. I spent a month in Thailand, which was also amazing. Um, I spent nine months in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, and then uh, my unit went over to the Middle East for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We were in the Middle East for oh, three or four months, um, and then came back to the States. So got to see a lot um, and met a lot of interesting people. Which then begs the question, why did you leave after four years? Yeah, that was that was kind of a touch and go thing. I think uh, once I got into the Marine Corps and I liked it and I was successful, I think for about three years, I was pretty strongly leaning towards staying in, making it my career. Um, and then at the end, I, I, I was going back and forth the past, the, the last six months or so. Uh, and at the end, I decided to get out and give college a try. I felt like if I missed it enough, I could always come back in, possibly come back in as an officer. Uh, but that was one of the, at that point in my life, whether to stay in or get out was probably the most difficult decision that I'd made. So you left the Marines, went to college. How did you go about the process of deciding sort of first that you were going to go to college and then deciding which one and what you wanted to study? Um, I, I probably should have put a little bit more thought into that. Um, I wanted to go to college because I had the GI Bill. It paid for a chunk of it. My family had always wanted me to go to college. Um, I was potentially going to be the first one in our family that had a college degree. Um, and it seemed like a decent thing to me. When I got out of high school, I didn't have really any interest in going to more school. 
partly because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, so nothing seemed terribly relevant. But after spending four years in the Marine Corps, it made a little bit more sense, seemed like a good investment. Um, I still had the problem of not really knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so because I came from a farming family and my dad was interested in having me come back and farm, I ended up studying agricultural business, which I am clearly putting to good use. Uh, but, uh, but, but another interesting experience. And one of the things that really caught me off guard going from the Marine Corps to college was pretty big culture shock. Um, the Marine Corps is a unique culture, um, different norms, different communication style. And I had adopted all that stuff and it just felt normal until I was in a very different place. My first semester, I actually lived in the dorms and, you know, these, uh, you know, I was a, I was a grizzled, you know, 22 year old veteran and these, these 18 and 19 year old kids didn't make any sense to me. And so there was, you know, it took me probably six months to a year to, um, I guess, get back to being a full civilian again. How did they respond to you? Um, I think they were a little bit freaked out and intimidated. I have kind of a serious demeanor anyway, and I think I was very serious and very intense when I first came out of the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, I walked a certain way and I stood a certain way and I talked a certain way. And I think, um, I think, you know, I didn't make a lot of friends in that dorm. I made one good friend. Um, I don't know if anybody else, uh, you know, cared for me much at all. My next guest is security consultant and violence prevention expert, Bobby Bromfield. Our conversation aired on March 10th, 2018. Bobby Bromfield is on a mission to help end violence in our workplaces and communities. Currently a violence prevention strategist, Bobby is a former law enforcement detective and FBI Safe Streets Task Force member. Bobby is also a former Department of Defense Conflict Zone Law Enforcement Advisor and a proud veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Among his numerous corporate and community endeavors, Bobby contributes to an initiative that seeks to educate young men about toxic masculinity. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. it probably makes sense to ask you a little bit about your upbringing and then we can talk just a little bit about about your career experience so so what was your upbringing like it was fine uh, <laughs> i um you know i i grew up in the south um between uh texas and mississippi moved to omaha and, and actually i'm an omaha and now i've lived here longer than anywhere uh but it was a great childhood i think i got um I got the bug to be a Marine super early in life because I, I knew at like seven, eight years old, I wanted to be in the Marine Corps. Um, I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement. I, you know, I kind of, you know, the the odd kid that had every the, the, his life plan written out at, at 10. Security has always been a, a huge piece of, um, you know, what, what I wanted to do. I got involved early in martial arts, even though we weren't allowed to fight. 
I found out quickly that I could defend people so uh, and not get in trouble for getting in a fight when I got home. So I, I kind of walked around looking for people who needed to be defended. Uh, <laughs> uh, but great childhood. Nothing scarred me into going to into going into uh, the fields I chose. Um, I, I just, you know, I was all I've always wanted to to do it. And I just had the opportunity to, to be able to pull it off. So what prompted you to join uh, the Marine Corps? You, you know, I, I always wanted to be a Marine. Uh, and then I can remember when I when I had it in my head that this is what I'm going to do is after the uh, the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut were was bombed. And I remember watching that on television. But it was it was something about the response, something about the way the Marines were talking about uh, the incident that I, I was like, wow. But all this going on, these guys are still pretty like, you know, like bring it on. We're ready. And uh, I want to be a part of that. So. So that's what actually made me uh, decide, yeah, I am definitely going to, to join. What prompted you to exit the Marine Corps and, and not stay in for longer? What prompted you to leave and then join the police I, force? I wanted to be a cop. And, and um, you know, w- with the Marines, I had an, uh, some amazing experiences. But I went in young. Uh, I was 17 when I went into the Marine Corps. And after I, I'd done it, you know, my goal was to stay in the reserve, but I wanted to be a police officer. So I initially went to Houston and my goal was to, to become a police officer there. But I was lucky enough to get called uh, back to Omaha and, and test. And, and I got on here and, and that's where my career began. So what was the lure of being in law enforcement? Uh, again, I, I, you know, I wish I could tell you, you know, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, it was, you know, Marine, um, law enforcement. Um, and, and there was some there was some some pretty tough cops in, in my neighborhood that had some really good that tough guy um, reputations. But I never saw any of that. They were always super nice to us. So, you know, but um, uh, Lewis and Officer Sewell and, um, you know, they, they were just bigger than life you know to a little kid they were like 15 feet tall and just firm with us all the time but they were really good guys so i i think they probably had a lot to a lot to do with the decision or the want to be a police officer your bio mentions that you were involved as a member of the fbi's safe streets task force what was that about it was a great experience. Uh, I did a lot of work uh, with the police department. I was in the homicide unit, uh, gang unit, uh, street level narcotics unit. So when when um, the FBI decided to start a, a safe street task force is what they called it, which basically concentrated on violent crimes. They recruited um, two officers from the police department. Uh, officers from DEA, state patrol. So it was a combined agency uh, initiative and, and it's still around. I, I was lucky enough, uh, one, for them to be interested in bringing me on and, and, and two, uh, to, to make the cut for the police department. So, uh, so I, I went there and, and it, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. You know, um, it gave you the opportunity to actually build cases 
rather than run from one to the next, one to the next, like you have to do as in law enforcement, which unfortunately a lot of people just don't know. It gave you the opportunity to actually take the time to see who the bad guy is, what the core issue is. And once you identify that core issue, then you had, the FBI had, you know, they gave you the resources so that you can really hone in on it. And and with one or two, three good arrests, the entire neighborhood was safe. So I, I love that piece of it. Um, just a, a great learning experience, uh, training in Quantico, doing all those, you know, it, it was just a great, great experience. You said earlier that, and you just alluded to this just now about what people don't know about the police and law enforcement. And earlier you mentioned that the police is inherently a responsive institution. Well, we don't set the police force up to be responsive to the community as part of the community. They're always called in after the event. So they're not building up those community relations. Is that something that you took away from your experience in law enforcement? And how does your experience in law enforcement influence the work you do now? I think law enforcement has evolved quite a bit since when I first started. There is a lot of work that needs to be done on a, on a community level. I still hear a lot of uh, law enforcement officers talk, you know, we're warriors and, you know, we have to go in and you know, we're, you know, we're at war with crime on the street. And I, I never looked at it as though I was a, a warrior getting ready to go out on a combat patrol. Uh, it, there's absolutely no way you can tie the two together. But I think that mentality has kind of, um, you know, officer safety is important. So you have to have that, that mindset that I'm going to get through whatever happens. But I think more and more and more we're learning that. A lot of the bad things that happen uh, may not happen if we have a stronger relationship with the communities that we patrol, if we take the time. And, and that's the issue. You know, you have to make the time, really, because depending on what area you're working in, you, your radio is going nonstop. So it's hard to really stop and chit chat with kids or chit chat with a mom or it, it's hard to do that. Some of my greatest successes came from tips from concerned citizens who just who were comfortable enough to approach me. If they're not comfortable enough to approach you as an officer, then you you are going to be reactive. You are it's going to force you to to come to that crime after it happens when they when someone with information wanted to tell you but, but was not comfortable enough to do it. I think here in Omaha we have great leadership with our police department. I think I think there's some great leadership there. I, I think that work is being done to to really build a stronger connection with the, the community and the police. And and it's a give and take. The community has to, you know, there, there's certain things the community has to do that, you know, we're not doing either. And, and that boils down to leadership. You have to have strong community leadership. You have to have strong law enforcement uh, leadership. And I think for the most part, Omaha is sitting okay. It's all right. Uh, it's better than a lot of places. I think that that gap can be bridged, particularly with the chief that we have now. You know, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is hearts and minds. And obviously it can be abused and misapplied and misunderstood in various contexts. But I think I first came across it in a military context. And that military context was that you would never win the battle on the ground unless you establish some kind of relationship with the people 
amongst whom this conflict was raging. And I think the same holds true for any kind of conflict resolution or law enforcement, unless you have some attempt at the hearts and minds. Uh, same with the workplace too, uh, unless you have hearts and minds on board, then inevitably uh, there's no bedrock on which you can prevent violence. Mm-hmm. In the Marine Corps, we had a saying, um, no worse enemy, no greater friend. And it's hearts and minds is hard. You know, it's it's easy to go in and and tear up. You know, you, you have the capability to do it. It's easy to, to set a policy in that says, you know, you will not do this in the workplace. And if it happens, you're fired. But it's harder to go in and, and build, you know, and say, this is the policy. This policy is in place because of these issues. This is why we need you to get on board with it. This is, you know, to go that extra mile and, and bring everybody in, you know, so that now they're looking at it like rather than I got a policy that's, you know, I got um, policy that that's standing over my shoulder that can get me thrown out of the door. Now they see it as a policy that's enabling them to help their coworker. I know by reading this policy that I can do all these things that are going to really help. And I wanted to help because I care for that person. I wanted to help because I believe in this brand, what we're doing. I want to get out on the street and make that time to talk to the people in the community that I patrol. Because, I mean, let's face if I'm laying on my back in the backyard somewhere, I want people willing to run out and help me. I want people willing to run out and you know, at least get on the phone and say, hey, look, you know, send more over here. And, and that's happened. I've, I mean, I've been in fights where civilians had to come over and grab an arm. Um, and I appreciate it. You know, if you don't build those relationships, people are just not going to be comfortable going that extra mile to meet you if you're not going that extra mile. And, and I think it's on law enforcement. I think it's on leadership to make those steps, those first steps. I mean, we're the guys with the guns. We're the guys that's holding the paychecks. We're the guys in charge. We have to make that that first move. And when that happens, you know, you have community, you have employees come around. You know, um, I don't want to get political on you, but I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that America has made over the last few years has been we've been very military heavy versus humanitarian. Most of the places I went to as a Marine, I went to to secure an area to drop food off, to, to bring doctors in, to, you know, to humanitarian aid. Yeah, we were ready, but the goal was the mission was humanitarian. And I, I just don't see a lot of that happening anymore, you know, from the, the U.S. And I, I think that's what gave us our power. That's what gave us the reputation that we have versus this. You know, I'm going to send a drone and shoot everything up mentality that we seem to have now. This week's show has featured extracts from my conversations with military veterans, Joe Gersten, Bobby Brumfield, and Chris Hochstetler. For podcasts of these full conversations, go to livesradioshow.com, where you'll also find many other conversations with fascinating people from all walks of life. 
that's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.